Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back on this episode of 30 with Murdy, a special look back at Field of Dreams and a conversation with the director of the legendary film, Phil Robinson. This week, the Yankees and White Sox will play the first ever Major League game at the Field of Dreams site in Iowa. They'll be playing this Thursday night on a field that's actually adjacent to the original field that's in the movie. There's a path that goes from the outfield of the original movie, you know, where the players disappear into the cornfield, and that path connects to the outfield of the new field, built for this special exhibition, which was to take place last year, but was obviously rescheduled because 2020 happened. So it's a good time to look back at the movie that came out in 1989 and touched audiences immediately and forever. Kevin Costner stars as the farmer who hears a voice, plows under his cornfield to build a baseball field, and then watches Shoeless Joe Jackson and the other members of the famous Black Sox scandal come back to life. But the kicker is, and this is a spoiler alert if you somehow haven't seen this movie yet, the kicker is his emotional reunion with his long-past father and the simple game of catch they have on the lawn at the very end, a tearjerker for many men to this day. Phil Alden Robinson is both the screenwriter and director of Field of Dreams, which received an Oscar nomination for Best Picture in the spring of 1990. I spoke to Robinson earlier this summer about the process of taking the movie from W.P. Kinsella's novel to the screen, making the film, its lasting impact, and his own love of baseball and the Brooklyn Dodgers, which the Long Beach, New York native managed to sneak into the film as well. As the Yankees and White Sox get set to play on the Field of Dreams, here is the man who created the beloved film, Phil Robinson. Phil, the first question I want to ask you is, I guess uh, I see that you're from Long Beach, New York. I spent part of my life in Long Beach, and I know a famous Yankee fan named Billy Crystal who's from Long Beach. What are your roots in Long Beach and uh, your kind of roots as a baseball fan? I I was born in Long Beach, New York. spent my entire childhood there. Uh, Billy was a year ahead of me in school. Okay. Uh, His wife, Janice, was in my class. In fact, I just talked to her the other day, and they just celebrated their 51st wedding anniversary. Wow. And Billy was a big Yankee fan. I was raised a Brooklyn Dodger fan and uh, loved the Dodgers, just passionately loved them. 
And therefore, I hated the Yankees. <laughs> of course. Because as a child, you don't know that you can appreciate the other team. You have to hate them. They're the enemy. Hated the Giants. I hated the Yankees. And, and um, But worshipped the Dodgers and dreamed about the Dodgers and wanted to be one. And, and um, when I was five years old, uh, my dad got tickets to a, to a, a Dodger game at Ebbets Field uh, through his business. And he got us on the field before the game so we could get our pictures taken with Roy Campanella. Wow. And uh, Walter Alston and the Bat Boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's what, I mean, people are going to hear this. They're not seeing this. That's a wonderful picture in a home white Dodger blue uni- Dodger uniform with yeah. Roy Campanella kneeling. And that young boy with the jacket and the cap. Holy That's me. cow. And over Campy's right shoulder is number 14, Gil Hodges, leaning up against the batting cage. I was going to ask you about him. I was going to save that for when we got into the discussion of the movie. But I'm going to ask you, there's a scene in the movie when all the players show up. And um, uh, young, young Archie Graham is running down a list of players. And they're all from, you know, Joe Jackson's era, except he says, there's Gil Hodges. And the Phantom is <laughs> saying... Where does that come from? Now I know. That's all you, isn't it? It's totally me. I had to have, and he was, he had already died at that point. Right. Campy was still alive. Uh, In fact, because of the movie, I got to meet Campanella. No kidding. Uh, That that fall, the Dodgers were in the playoffs, and Roy Dado, who was our baseball coach, uh, who had been the USC coach for many years, Rod took me to a game at Dodger Stadium, and... um, we sat down and he introduced me to Don Newcomb, which was fantastic. And, and Sandy Koufax was sitting two rows in front of us. And then there's Roy Campanella. And I got so choked up. I could barely say, hi, it's an honor to meet you. And I, I teared up and had to walk away. I was so moved to meet this, this great man. No who kidding. Who was a hero of mine as a child. And this is the era before smartphones, so I couldn't take my phone out and show him the picture of him and me when I was five years old. And that picture you showed me is is preserved quite well. I, I mean, it's um, you know, I mean, that's a that memory doesn't leave you. Do you remember actually being the moment that you took the picture? I sure do. I sure do. And I remember uh, I had my arm around him. He had his arm around me, and I just thought, "Oh my God, this is this is the best it gets." Wow. Uh, so you have a lifelong passion for something that's kind of similar. You know, there's just this passion for baseball and a generational thing that when you make this movie and are in the process of making this movie, you're drawing on your own experiences and history with the game. Very much so. And also my memories as a child of playing catch with my dad uh, on the, on the, the lawn next to our house on summer nights. Uh, those are some of the best memories I have. The um, so that that explains now. I mean, it's been over thirty years, and that Gil Hodges line is stuck in my head, and now I know where it comes from. That's fantastic. Um, did you ever imagine, even after the movie came, while you're making the movie, after the movie comes out and it's a hit, you ever imagine that thirty years down the road, that there's an actual Major League Baseball game about to be played on the Field of Dreams? I couldn't imagine that that field would be there a year later. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, we carved out from a cornfield, a working cornfield, this baseball diamond. And when we finished, we just assumed it was going to go back to being a cornfield again. And, and, and uh, because that was our place of work, that was our office that summer. You know, it wasn't a shrine, 
it was a working set, movie set. Uh, so the idea that 30 years later, that, I mean, they get 100,000 visitors a summer to that field now. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, it all comes from the fact that you were moved when you read the book Shoeless Joe, which I guess I had seen something. You didn't even want to read it. Somebody recommended it to you and you didn't even want to read it. It sounded terrible. This, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine said, you got to read this. I said, what's it about? She said, it's about a farmer. And I said, you know, I'm kind of a city boy. Um she said, no, wait, he hears a voice. I said, oh, this is really not for me. And she said, wait, he has to go kidnap J.D. Salinger. And I said, all right, stop right there. There's not a chance I'm reading this book. And she made me read it. She said, you, you have to go home tonight and you have to read this book. And I literally, it felt like a homework assignment to me. I resented it. And that night I started to read and I couldn't put it down. I sat up all night long until I finished reading and your your emotions that you just talked about, just playing catch with your dad, all the you know going to Ebbets Field. These are the things that all stuck with you as you're reading this. Sure, and you know I loved baseball as a kid. I wasn't very good at it. So Join there's the a crowd. there's a particular romance that those of us who weren't great at playing it have for the game, yeah. because it's that unattainable dream. You know, I had one good day as a ball player as a kid. I went to summer camp in Brant Lake, upstate New York, and, and I played second base poorly. And one day the third baseman was sick and they said to me, you play third. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die in the hot corner. I was brilliant that day. I was <laughs> snagging line drives and fielding balls that I, should, I had no reason to get. And years later, I realized, oh yeah, I could move to my glove side, I guess. As a second baseman, you're often moving to your right, and I'm a righty, mm -hmm. so that was awkward for me. But at third, I just hugged the line and moved left, and I was really good, and nobody picked up on that that day and said, hey, maybe you should play third base. <laughs> so I had one good day that stayed with me all these years, and I, I feel like I just got it. I got that, that moment of clarity about what it really feels like. Usually I ask this question of professional ball players about – say the last out of a World Series or a no-hitter. I'm going to ask you this question. If you close your eyes, can you still feel the ball hitting your glove as you're making one of those plays? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely I can. That, that memory is as, as vivid to me as almost anything in my life. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We, we all have some of those. And that's the power this game has. So I... I read the, the part about where you started to pitch this and move this forward and the idea of three subjects that this book is about are all three major no-nos in Hollywood baseball farming and ghosts right yeah we we hit the trifecta and, and uh, just we were I was too dumb to know you can't do it and the amazing thing to me is Kevin Costner who had just made Bull Durham was willing to make a second baseball film in a row. It was extraordinary he made one. The idea that he was gonna make two was almost unthinkable. And uh, fortunately, you know, Kevin's one of those people for whom conventional wisdom is, uh, is anathema to him. So he just follows his heart and he, he did it. Uh, we were very lucky. You, you might notice over my shoulder here is Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. Uh, yeah. I remember hitting the theaters in 1987 and never believing he could be anyone else other than Elliot Ness. And then he made Bull Durham. I'm like, okay, I'll buy it. But he, he's, to me, he's still Elliot Ness. So he's on a good of, bit of a role here. Is he the guy that you had pictured in your mind or wanted all along at that point? 
he's the first guy we said don't go to because he had just made a baseball film and there was no chance he was going to make two in a row. We literally on the first day of discussion uh, said, boy, he'd be great, but don't even bother. So we were making lists of other actors of that generation, uh, hadn't landed on anybody that we were in love with. um, When an executive from Universal ran into Kevin, I think at dinner one night and said to him, hey, we've got this script and I think you'd be really good for it. And Kevin read it the next day and called this executive back and said, you know, if you're interested, I'd like to do it. And they called me and I said, well, let's just stop looking at anybody else. This don't, please don't tell him he's not supposed to do two in a row. <laughs> yeah, and we met, for breakfast. we met for breakfast and uh, he was great. And he said, um, you know, I, I love what this is about. And I, I love the script and I want to do this. And, and uh, he said, you're going to feel a lot of pressure when things aren't going right to change the script. And I'll be the guy standing over your shoulder, whispering in your ear, don't change a word. <laughs> he was your voice. He was the he voice. Was my voice. That's right. That's right. The um, I'll get into more things about him in a minute, and you know uh, about being a baseball movie. The one thing about you know, uh, I, I I did not read the book, so apologies for not under knowing yet the nuances between your script and the book. Um, but the one thing that I love about this, and I got to chat a couple of years ago with Timothy Busfield, and I, and I mentioned this. Uh, part of it to him. The one thing I really love about this particular movie, and it's kind of true with all fantasy type situations, uh, the audience has to root for the crazy man and they have to ignore the rational ones, which would go against everything that you would do in your own life. You would never ever root for the crazy man. So the trick in writing and making this is having the crazy man be the one everybody is rooting for. Uh, How did you pull that off? Uh, that's, that's a great question because that was a real issue. And in the book, he hears the voice once and on, on page one and on page two, he goes to his wife and says, I have to build a baseball diamond out there. So Shoeless Joe can play. And she says, okay. And the first draft of the script, I did it that way. And it was clear he was nuts. And I thought, (laughs) okay, that doesn't work. So what are we going to do? And I'm, I'm not a, a, a new age kind of a guy. I don't believe in voices and all that kind of mumbo jumbo. So I thought, well, what would I do if I heard a voice? I would assume there's a logical explanation. It's a sound truck on a highway or kids with a radio or something. And I would ignore the voice. And if I heard it again, I'd say, I'd make a joke about it. And the third time, if I heard it again and saw a vision, I would have to ex- accept it as something. But I would constantly be saying, I know this is crazy. And so that was the key. Kevin says probably six different times, I know this is nuts, but some, I just feel like I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. And he says to her, do you think I'm crazy? And she says, yes. But if you feel you have to, then do it. So that, that to me was the big hurdle to overcome is how do I have him acknowledge it's crazy so the audience doesn't say, wait a second, that's nuts. And, and he's also built as a strong family man. So it's not like he's, he's ignoring his family for this one crazy goal. He understands his obligation to them throughout this whole process. That's exactly right. And, and that was also very important for Kevin as an actor. He always wanted to uh, stay rooted in the family. And there's this lovely moment uh, when the little girl says, Daddy, there's a man out there on your yeah. lawn. And he's just kind of sort of curtly told her to be quiet. And he walks by her and he puts his hand on her shoulder. 
And it was just a little gesture to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was very important to him that he was always the good dad and a, and a good husband. I remember reading this in a review around that time, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was the idea that the ghosts who play the other ball players, they're fun. They're not, you know, Jacob Marley toting chains around in with Ebenezer Scrooge. Although when Ray Liotta first shows up, there's a little bit of element of that. He's a very heavy character at first, but then the other guys show up and it's, it's fun. That's a, that seemed to be another kind of a brilliant stroke there where these guys were not, you know, this overbearing, heavy type of character presence. Right. And I, I really felt like well, if I was out there in limbo for 70 years uh, and I got to come back on a ball field as a younger man again, I'd just be having a blast. I'd be yeah. thrilled. Yeah. And, and that was the direction I gave those guys. We were going to originally, as, as written, we were going to come out and find them all playing. And before we shot that scene, they had all walked into the corn and I said, guys, come out. And I saw them emerge from the corn and it was so beautiful. And I looked at the cameraman and I said, well, we got to do that. And he said, okay. So we had them all go back in the corn and I was on the bullhorn. I said, come on out. And they all came out and they, I said, you just look around. You haven't been in a field for 70 years. And they're looking around and finally I yelled, play ball. And they all just leaped in the air and ran and they were having a blast. And I thought that's exactly what these guys would be feeling. And I love some of the detail that you went through with your director of photography and things like that, where, you know, this so-called magic hour, there's a lot, a lot of this movie is shot with a certain lighting that apparently you can only get for 10 or 15 minutes a day. So I guess this is the brilliance in directing and acting and editing where you, you know, you probably shot a five minute scene over multiple days uh, because of the actual lighting that you needed. It's exactly right. The, the uh, and magic hour is a misnomer. It lasts about 15 minutes and, and it's not actually dawn as a uh, dusk rather, as people think it's, it's that moment when the light on the face is the same as the light in the sky. So we would be set up for the shot and I would say to John Lindley, the DP, are we ready? And he says, not yet. And I'm waiting and I'd say, ready? He said, not yet. And we're all waiting and finally he would turn to me and we'd say, uh, if you wanna shoot this, you better do it right now. <laughs> we'd get off a couple of shots and that was it. The night that we did Kevin and Amy on the picnic blanket, having just built the field. It was a beautiful sunset that night. I figured we'll never get this on two nights, this light. So we set up two cameras, almost if it was like a live TV show. And the one camera was on them on the blanket. When he stood up, they stand up into the second shot. So mm -hmm. we did that all in one take. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a brilliant sky above them. Beautiful. Yeah. It, I actually, it, it's funny because I remember thinking for years, it almost looks like a painting. It looks like a mat behind them of something. Uh, it's that great. Um, there's an element to this movie that I didn't pick up on the first couple of times I saw it. I remember going to see it with a group of friends in college, you know, for the, maybe the third or fourth time. And, and one of my friends pointed this out. I thought it was kind of interesting. And again, maybe this is clear in the book. Maybe it's not, maybe it's just total coincidence. Um, but Archie Graham gets his one turn at bat in the game and he hits a sacrifice fly. And my friend turns to me and says, sacrifice. He, that, that was his whole life. I'm like, oh, it never hit me. I wonder if that was intentional. You're nodding. Of course it was intentional, right? It was intentional. Um, I, I also like the idea that it's not the cliche, he gets a home run. Right, you know? right. Uh, and um, 
two things about that that I, I recall, one of which is um, uh, the right fielder who catches it was a journalist friend of mine named Jeff Silverman who wrote for, the, for one of the LA papers. And he had told me, he says, I wanna write an article about the picture, but I wanna play in the game. And I said, okay. So we shaved him, he had a wonderful beer. We shaved him, he put him in right field and he, he caught the ball. Um, and um, the, um, the other thing that I remember about that is, gee whiz, it's, it's not that bad, is it? Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I wondered later, I wonder if we should have had him get a hit so it's an at bat because he never got an at bat in the majors. But then I thought, you know, there's a nice symmetry to this. He didn't get a bat, an at bat in heaven either. So that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so is that, was that from the book or was that from your script? Did you, how did, how did that happen? Or do you even remember? I don't remember that. I, I, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't think he, he, I could be wrong. I'm not going to say, I, I really don't remember. Yeah. The, uh, obviously the movie comes to this great conclusion with James Earl Jones and his speech. Um, I, I would like you to tell the people listening, uh, and I'm not entirely clear on this either, but there's apparently another version of James Earl. There are two versions of James Earl Jones delivering the speech. Um, that you got on camera. Is there another version that exists on film of the speech he's given? Not on film. What happened was uh, I had, we shot that at the end of the, the schedule and the entire summer we were shooting, I kept saying to myself, just, you know, it was a hard shoot. And I kept saying, but at the end of the shoot, you're going to get this amazing treat. James Earl Jones is going to get out there and just let it rip and just open the heavens with this great oration. And we finally got to the day when he was going to make that speech. And he said to me, hey, you know, I was thinking, I don't want to preach this speech. I don't want to be big. I just want to say the words. And my heart sank. <laughs> I thought, no, I waited all this time. I want to hear it big. And I said, uh, why do you feel that way? And he said, I think it's egotistical to preach. And I don't think the character is. I just want to say the words. And I said, okay. And he did it and he did it right. And I think that was the right approach. And I'm glad I trusted him on that. The next day we turned the camera around to get the reaction shots of all the people on the bleachers to his speech. He wasn't on camera that day, but he came to the set because he's a generous person to give those lines off camera. So the people had something to react to. And he, as we were shooting, he said to me, you know, I feel kind of bad. I didn't get to preach this thing. Do you mind terribly if I did it today? And I said, no, I wouldn't mind at all. And he let it rip and it was phenomenal. And it was, I really felt that half of Iowa could have heard him. And, and it was big and expansive. It would have been wrong for the film, but I feel so privileged. We all felt so privileged to have heard that. It was almost like he was giving us this gift. It was like here, here's a little reward for, for sitting through the, uh, a hot, uh, a humid summer. Wow, so the, the version we see in the film I mean, that's the quieted down version. That's the non-preachy version. Yes. Yes. Because that still plays pretty big in the moment. It's big, but it's not, uh, the character himself is not saying, now listen to me. He's, he's naturally expansive, yeah. but he's not pushing it. Uh, the pushed version was just a total treat. And I mean, I, I remember looking at the parking lot, which was maybe a couple hundred yards away. And I could see Teamsters coming out of their trucks, you know, to, to, to listen uh, it was really something. I, I and again, I wish I wish this was in the iPhone or digital age because I can't find it anywhere, <laughs> recall it anywhere. But I was at a Yankees Tampa Bay, I think they were the Devil Rays at the time, not just the Rays game in St. Pete. He recited the national anthem, 
and uh-huh. it was phenomenal. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was it was without a doubt one of the you know three or four best performances of that that I've ever seen. It's pretty he, amazing. And you know, he told me about that speech just before he did it. He said, you know, I know this speech is not going to make it in the in the final cut. I said, what? Hmm? I thought maybe somebody at the studio had told him something that I didn't know. And he, he said, no. He says, you know, when I read the script, I, I said to my wife, uh, th- this sort of thing never never makes it in the final cut. But I want to take this role because I want to do this scene. And I said, I promise you they're going to cut my legs off before they cut this scene out of the movie. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and no one ever suggested cutting it out. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that we didn't have to fight that. We did have to fight a little bit on Ray Liotta's uh, monologue when he's talking about uh, the thrill of the grass and you know that I shot that in one take with no coverage so that they couldn't cut it out because I, I worried that that's the kind of thing people will say oh you know the picture's getting slow here speed it up and I, I would just say you know I'm, I wish I could but I can't I got no coverage there is there's a wonderful element of that part that I actually forgot to ask you about so I'm glad you you brought it up again the the set there's a sound um, that's brilliant in that where the, the sound of the glove, the sound of the ball in the glove and the spikes on the grass. And that sound is amplified and highlighted, I think for our benefit, but it adds this haunting feeling to what you're watching. And I mean, you, you hear it occasionally in other places, but it's, it's really meant to stick out. I feel like in that scene, and it really adds a lot to that. It is. And, and, uh, the irony is shooting at night, on a farm in Iowa is loud. Mm. It was harder to record sound there than it is on the streets of New York. And crickets? I shot them, yeah, crickets. Yeah. And every insect for 50 miles was awake. Cows were awake, <laughs> roosters were awake. I mean, everything because we had all these lights on. Oh, and so no. almost all of the sound in that scene uh, was replaced in post-production. Wow. That's... And so that glove sound, I'm pretty sure was done in the studio later. Wow, it, it it actually plays very well. Uh, I still laugh when the credits roll and it says the voice as himself. Um, I guess the rumor mill has Ed Harris as the voice. Is is that? Are you have you ever revealed who it was? I've never revealed who it is. Um, I'll go this far and say it was not Ed Harris. Okay, all right. Um, uh, I'm not sure where that started. Ed came to the set. He was on the set one day. Uh, uh, he had just finished shooting The Abyss. And on the way home, he came by to, to be with Amy. And uh, it was fun to have him there. Uh, and I wish I'd thought of having him do the voice. It would have been good. But uh, Is this going to be like a, like a deep throat thing where, you know, on your deathbed, you're going to reveal it to us at some point? Well, it was Mark Felt. It was former FBI official Mark Felt. Was the voice. <laughs> you got the exclusive. <laughs> Thanks for thanks for clearing that up for me. I appreciate that. Um, I, I also found really funny. I don't know how many people know this story, but the the as the titles were coming up, um, it became apparent to the studio that Shoeless Joe was not going to be the name of the movie. Um, and one of the titles that they suggested was giving away the ending entirely. Oh yeah, one of the titles they suggested was Dad's Second Chance. <laughs> And I thought, that's great. It's like, let's rename Citizen Kane, Rosebud is the sled. <laughs> just give it away. They, I mean, they came up with a, a thick, must have been 50 pages of two columns of titles. Everybody in the studio contributed ideas. Mm-hmm. One of which was uh, Nazi Sweater Girls. 
And I, I asked them about that. And I said, where, they said, well, we put that in every, every lit, <laughs> if anybody's reading these things. Uh, but um, I remember the day that Tom Pollock, who was chairman of Universal, called me. I was in the editing room and he said, um, we can't call the film Shoeless Joe. It's the first time I'd heard any suggestion of that. I said, what are you talking about? That's the name of the book. It's the name of the movie. He said, no, 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 we, we, we've tested the title and, and people think it's about a homeless man or they think that Kevin plays Shoeless Joe and it's just confusing to them. And I said, what are you going to call it? He said, well, we have this great title, uh, Field of Dreams. And I said, Field of Dreams? It sounds like a room deodorizer. <laughs> no, now Field of Dreams with Lemon. And, and I just, I said, it's a terrible title. And he said, well, that's what we're going to call it. And I, I was desperate. And I said, you know, I fear that changing the title changes the experience of seeing the movie because the movie kicks into high gear when Shoeless Joe shows up. And if you don't call the movie Shoeless Joe, that scene might lose. I was just desperate for anything. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'd like to test the film again. And he said, okay. And I was hoping that the scores would go down. And they recruited an audience under the title Field of Dreams and the scores actually went up. Wow. So I realized I'd lost the argument and I had to call W.P. Kinsella and give him the bad news. And I called him up and I said, look, the good news is it's testing really well. People seem to like the movie, but the bad news is we can't call it Shoeless Joe. And he said, oh, I don't care about that. I said, you don't? He said, no, 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 that wasn't even my title. That was the publisher's title. And I hadn't said Field of Dreams to him yet. I said, what was your title? He said, Dream Field. And I thought, okay, the universe universe telling me to just accept it. That's right. So that's what it was. That's beautiful. Obviously, it works out great. Uh, I have... I have heard you say that you have one regret over what is what is considered a uh, an almost perfect movie um, is a certain element of the players that came back to play. Uh, yeah. There were and and it's it, you know in this day and age now I would love to hear your thoughts on it because I've heard you say this in interviews from 15 years ago. I think it stands out more in the climate that we're in. There were no black baseball players among the ghosts that came back to play at the Field of Dreams. Right. The dumbest mistake I think I've ever made. And, and I, 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 that sounds like a flippant statement, but I really legitimately felt horrible about that when I realized it, which was too late to do anything about it. Um, it was just stupid. It would have been so easy to, to say, you know, there, there's, a, there's a long list of great Negro League players we could have, we could have uh, had. I, I didn't do it. It's totally on me, and uh, I will always regret that. Do you remember the first time like that thought occurred to you? I don't remember the first time it occurred to me, but I was hoping nobody else would notice. You know, you go, you have this sort of denial about, well, maybe no one else will notice. And the first time it came up, uh, it was in some review. Uh, I thought, they're right. You know, kick, kick me in the butt for that one, because that was just stupid. You touched on this earlier about Kevin Costner coming off of Bull Durham, and that's the summer of 1988. This comes out, you know, late spring of 1989. Um, Kevin Costner has made Bull Durham, but the previous fall, Eight Men Out came out as a movie, which highlighted Shoeless Joe Jackson and the 1919 Black Sox scandal. In the spring of 1989, Pete Rose is being investigated for gambling, and the name Shoeless Joe Jackson and the Black Sox, that all comes out again. Um, Do you think this confluence of events helped in any way to highlight what your movie and your story was about? I I don't think it did, because... uh... 
d- despite the, the, the things you just said, so few people knew who Shoeless Joe Jackson was. Um, we, and it was actually, that was something we thought about because I have an actor playing Shoeless Joe who's swinging right-handed yeah. instead of left-handed. And part of my thinking was, you know, there's nobody alive who saw Shoeless Joe swing a bat. And I'd much rather have this actor look like he's a good hitter than to assuage the one or two percent of the audience who cares about what side of the plate he's on. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, we did uh, some research and found that almost nobody knew who Shoeless Joe was, which was a pity because he's one of the greats. Mm-hmm. Um, the John Sayles film was wonderful. I love that film. Yeah. Um, I think that after that film and ours, more people knew who Jackson was. Uh, but gee, when we came out, uh, a lot of people thought he was just a fictional character we'd made up. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. When I talked to um, Robert Kamen, who wrote The Karate Kid, I asked mm. him, I said, when was the moment that you knew you had something? He said, when he walked out in the alley after a screening, he saw kids doing the crane kick. I said, <laughs> ooh, okay, this might turn into something. Was there a moment when, you know, when you knew that you hadn't just made a movie that you liked and you wanted to make, but you made something that was special. There were, there were actually uh, a few moments. Uh, one was the, f- the first person that we showed the movie to who hadn't been part of it was the composer, uh, uh, James Horner. And he came in like nine o'clock in the morning with his agent uh, for a screening of the rough cut. And when the film ended, I was sitting behind them and Mike Gorfay and his agent turned around and said to me, oh, Phil, it's wonderful. I really like it. And I thought, great. And James doesn't turn around. And Mike kept saying, oh, Kevin's great in the film and this is great. And I said, yeah, thanks. And finally, it's obvious that something has not been said here. And James still hasn't even turned around. And Mike said to him, oh, James, what do you think? And Jamie said, would you excuse me? And he left the room. And I thought, oh my God, the film is so bad. He can't even <laughs> score it. You know, hey, it's interesting, but I'm so busy. I can't, I can't score it. And Gorfain said to me, I'm so sorry, Phil. I don't know what to say. And, he's, and he went out into the hallway and came back in and said, James is out there crying. Wow. And he came back in the room finally. And he said in this very strangled voice, I'm speechless. And I said, you don't have to say much. Just say yes. <laughs> and he said, Yes. And I thought, wow, this is, this is good. And then a few days later, we had a test screening for a, a recruited audience. And I'm sitting in the back on the aisle and I can see two rows in front of me on the aisle, a woman weeping in the last scene of the movie. So just racked with sobs, so heavy that I, I got out of my seat. I was gonna go over and just put my arm on her shoulder and say, it's okay, it's just a movie. And I, as I got close to her, I recognized her. She worked for the studio's marketing department and she'd already seen the film. Oh. And that really took me aback. I thought, wow, she saw it last week and she's still having this reaction. Maybe this is going to work. Wow. You know, it's, it's the audience who tells you. And, and um, they responded uh, just better than I could have imagined. Is there a, you know, I spoke last year to... Angelo Pizzo, who wrote um, Hoosiers and Rudy. And mm-hmm. he told me that he has a script that he's dying to make that's better than those. It's a biopic of Mickey Mantle. 
And he says, his Mickey Mantle script is better than Hoosiers. It's better than Rudy. I'm going, okay, I can't wait to see this. As you probably know, there are lots of factors in Hollywood, and the movie has never been made. Is there a story that you have kind of in the back of your mind always wanted to tell, but for one various reason or another never got to? You know, like every writer, I have have a drawer full of scripts that I think are great that never got made. And... and, um, uh, too many to to single one out. I mean, there there is a French film, a uh, Claude Lelouch film, and now my love. I've always wanted to remake. I just love that. That uh, it's a an epic romance in which the couple meets in the last scene, and he goes back three generations to show how that moment happens. Wow! I always thought that'd be great to to do. Um, but uh, yeah, I've got a lot of I've got a lot that I would love to do, and and I'm just so grateful that this one got made against all the odds. So when the Yankees and White Sox are playing in Iowa on, it's not going to be the actual field of dreams. They built one adjacent and they, you know, they come through the cornfield on the other side, basically, but it's all taking place right there. Is the, uh, is the young kid from Long Beach who uh, hated the Yankees going to watch for a few moments? I'll watch, you know, I'll be rooting for the Yankees though. I'll tell you that. Really? Yes. How did that happen? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still a a diehard Dodger fan living in Los Angeles and, uh, uh, but I've gotten over that sort of childhood notion that uh, anyone who is not your favorite team is the enemy. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker by birth, so so I'm going to root for the for the for the for the Yankees, and I'd root for the Giants if they were still in New York. And I've got a couple of years ago, I got to meet Reggie Jackson. I was in an elevator, and uh, I said to him, just as a long as a lifelong Dodger fan, I just have to thank you for some of the most exciting baseball I've ever seen. You know the when you guys beat us those two in the late seventies, those two world series in a row, it was heartbreaking, but it's some of the most thrilling baseball I've ever seen. What did he say? He was, he was grateful to hear that. And then of course, then I said, but in 81, we got you. (laughs) (laughs) And he, he, he talked about how he loves playing. uh, He's been to the field in Dyersville a couple of times and he loves playing that. Um, And uh, he was, he was a lot of fun to talk to. He was a, a good guy. Have you gotten memorable reactions from baseball people over the years? Um, early this year, the, the, there's a there's a podcast that Joe Davis, who is the Dodger broadcaster, replaced Vin Scully. Mm-hmm. Joe Davis and Oral Hershiser broadcast the Dodger games out here. They're very good, and they have his podcast. And uh, last year, they did one on baseball movies, and they had Dave Roberts as their guest. And I... I listened to it, and uh, I think Joe Davis said his number one favorite baseball movie was Field of Dreams. And Oral went through his list, and his number one was Field of Dreams. And Dave Roberts, bless him, uh, he said his number one was Field of Dreams. And that's one of my favorite things to hear. These three guys who represent the Dodgers today uh, love the movie, and that meant just the world to me. My thanks again to Phil Robinson. It's easy to see how an artist like Robinson appreciates that his creation endures after all this time. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know how much I love talking about sports movies. And if you're not a regular listener, well, why aren't you? Check out the archive at Odyssey and Apple Podcasts. Go back and hear conversations that I had with Angelo Pizzo, the screenwriter of Hoosiers, or with Mark Chardy the former major league pitcher turned movie producer responsible for Miracle, The Rookie, and several others. Make sure to hit subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. You want to have a catch? Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Oh, 